A few weeks ago, I began voicing my doubts whether my generation could ever wake up from our slumber. I thought revival might be impossible for us. We are engrossed in screens, we are perpetually distracted, we have so little depth, we consume information by the truckload, we have no room for the unseen. My mind has since changed. My generation, infamously understood as the post-truth generation, is shouting truths of blinding light into the darkness. My generation, which drowns in comfort and distraction, is giving up long hours daily to spend time singing the same thing over and over and over and over again. My generation, the loneliest generation ever, is creating communities of unspeakable depth while praying for things they've never prayed for before, encouraging others to press on toward the true friend. My generation, plagued by anxiety, is dancing and saying that the Lord is sovereign and holds everything in His hands. If you don't know, the movement of the Spirit at Asbury started when 25 students stayed after a Wednesday chapel. When everybody else picked up their bags, put on their jackets, pulled out their phones, just a few people remained and continued worshiping. Then they started praying with and over each other. Then they started texting other people to come and join them. Then those people started texting other people. Then they didn't stop for a week straight. 25 students. Twenty-five students. Today is an all-radius Sunday. For those of y'all that are new, we have six different campuses. There'll be over 2,500 people at those six campuses this morning. Just one percent. Just, just 25 people. So should we all get in our car and drive to Asbury? Is that the answer? We sent four of our 25-year-olds. They only allow you in now if you're 25 and under. Evidently, some of us old people started showing up and running the, running the party. <laughs> so we sent uh, three staff guys that are, in the, in the, that are 25 and, and, and one more, and they came back and gave us a report. That's actually where that video is from, from one of the staff guys who was there. I've had two sons drive out there just to check it out. I have two sons in college that have stuff going on at their colleges that is, is hard to describe, quite honestly. I don't know if you're looking at the news at all on this. Texas A&M had a gathering last night that was crazy, full of college students, worshiping our God. It's been going on for a few weeks. You kind of you wonder, are, are we being shaken? Is, is our nation being shaken or at least our college kids being shaken out of some sort of a slumber. I thought this morning we would take a little time and talk about revival. What is a revival anyway? And then ask a really hard question. 
If that's what it is, do I want it? We'll take a little time. We've been calling this series the Red Letter Podcast. It's, it's a series on the Sermon on the Mount out of Matthew. We're going to take just a little time in Matthew today, and I'm just going to give you some revival history, and we'll ask some questions of ourselves in the process. Let me pray. Feel heavy, Lord, feel. Feel the weight of hope for certainly these uh, young men and women from campus to campus all over the all over the nation. Sounds like you're stirring this in all variety of countries. Thank you for what went on in the Philippines yesterday. What are you doing, Lord? How should we respond? I question my heart, Lord. I, I ask that question myself. I have been for a couple weeks. Do I really want revival? I pray that you'd help us as a body ask that today. As, as a group of believers, many of us, and some that have yet to choose to follow you, Jesus, pray that you, by your spirit, would, would move on our room and then move on us individually. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know if you, you're like me. I grew up in Anderson, South Carolina, and when I think revival, what do you think of? I think of the Baptist church down the street that's having a revival from April 11th to the 16th. Anybody been to one of them? That's kind of the frontier approach to revival. On the American frontier, oftentimes revivals would break out, and, and they were very gospel-centered. There would be this vigorous evangelistic opportunity, and they would invite folks to a, a meeting where the guy would preach the gospel, and folks often would get saved. And when it was revival, lots of folks, you call revival, lots of folks would get saved. So like we do oftentimes in the church, we take something that was kind of miraculous and something the Holy Spirit stirred, and then we put it in our own little box, and we said, we're going to do it for five nights, and we're going to bring in a guest speaker, and he's going to sweat a lot. And uh, the one I went to, he preached against rock music. I was sitting on the back. I was like 21. I was so mad by the time he's done. I came up and confronted him as soon as. So now you understand me a little bit better. I'm like, you're a legalist, dude. And then we kind of went at it back and forth. Cheryl was a little embarrassed. We were, we were newlyweds. Uh, that was a revival. But that was, that was in a box what happened on the frontier where folks were transformed by hearing the gospel. And for many of us that are skeptics in the room, like the first thing we think of when we hear the frontier form of revival, we think manipulation. We wonder how many times is the organist going to play just as I am when he's done. I've seen one dude play with his watch. He says, when I'm done playing with my watch, this is your last opportunity. Then I'm like, bro, that watch must be broke because you can play with it for like 20 minutes. Like how long can you play with a watch? Like there's, you, you've been there before. And for some of you, there's deep skepticism. For others of you, you met Jesus in a setting like this and it was real. So because of some manipulation, folks like Billy Graham, when he started Crusades, got great criticism from the church, and yet he had this power and clarity of the gospel, and the Lord used him to lead thousands and thousands of folks to Christ. Maybe you were one of them. I know there's some at this church. So that's the frontier approach. Then there's the Pentecostal approach. So the, the, you thought the frontier approach was crazy. The Pentecostal is much more entertaining, right? Like Pentecostal approach, like there, there's this deep desire 
to hear from the Holy Spirit. They talk a ton about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and it is wild, right? I've been in some of those settings, and man, like the only word I can say for some of it is bizarre. Like, what the heck is going on in here? And if you've read about any of that in American history, there's, there's some... Uh, there's some crazy stuff that's going on. And for many of you, you might be like, you might be sitting here very skeptical of that. Others of you might, hey, that's where I come from. But I had some very significant moments in those kind of gatherings that they called revival. For most of us that would be more skeptical, the word that comes to mind is emotionalism. Like, like the frontier, we, we, we think about manipulation. And the other, we feel like, man, that's a lot like a basketball game. Everybody's so stirred up. I don't know what's real and what's not. Here's my fear for us. Many of us are skeptical or cynical because we are sleepy. And we don't want to be shaken. So on the one hand, there's, I heard Tim Keller say this week, he's an 80% cessationalist. I'm not going to explain what that means, but it basically means he's not sure about the gift of tongues. And he, but sometimes, he, like 20% of the time, he does. Because he doesn't know how all that works. He's not willing to throw it into the box. But he's got good reasons for being skeptical about it sometimes. Right? I thought that was a brilliant way to say it. Like, God does what he wants to do. And I always want to be a part of what God wants to do. I'm not putting him in a box. But the church, often when she's sleepy, wants to put God in the box so that she won't have to wake up. Tim Keller gives a definition I'll use this morning of revival. Biblical revival is the intensification of the ordinary operations of the Holy Spirit. I thought that was pretty, pretty stout. I know most of you that know me know I've only used the word intensification in this moment in my life, right? <laughs> but I thought it was, I know what intense means. Biblical revival is the intensification of the ordinary operations of the Holy Spirit. And as I read that, I go, man, this morning the Holy Spirit move on our room. This is something we do over and over and over. Well, could it be more intense by his choice? Could your group be a little more intense? Could your quiet time be more intense? If you know your Bible very well, there's one book in the Bible that's dedicated to revivals. It's the book of Judges. The people do what's right in their, in their own eyes, they rebel against God, and then he brings a revivalist. The first one's named Othniel. You've probably not heard of him. The second one's named Ehud. One of my sons loves him because he's left-handed, right? The, the third one is a dude named Shamgar. I love him because there's only one verse in the Bible, and he's violent in it. It's awesome. Ladies in the room, God doesn't just use dudes. This, this lady named Deborah in a time where, where there's no feminism, right? There's no, like, ladies' rights. She, she, God promotes her as the revivalist, and she leads her nation in a revival. When I say revival, what often happens is God speaks to this individual and judges, and that individual obeys him and begins to lead the people back to God, and often there's some violence that ensues to get them out of bondage. The judges that you may have heard of would be Gideon and Samson, right? That would be the famous one. But the whole book, it goes, it goes people do what's right in their own eyes, and then there's a revival, and then there's another 40 years, and there's another revivalist in it time and time and time again. You can flip to the book of Nehemiah, and you'll see a revival. You'll see 
a, a group of Jewish folks that again turned back to God. For most of us, we know about the New Testament. Like if you know the Bible well, if you don't, don't be embarrassed about it. We're all learning here. Acts chapter 2, Jesus has left. This is where we get the word Pentecost on the, the day of Pentecost. This, this is where the church embraces it. Uh, Apostle Peter stands up and preaches. Some dude accuses him of being drunk. He is so fired up about the gospel. He's able to communicate the gospel in a variety of languages, even though he hasn't studied them. And 3,000 people believe that day. And what else do they do? They're baptized. They believe, and they're baptized, and it's on. It's a revival. For 200-plus years after that, the church lives in a state of revival. Like, People are getting saved across our planet, place to place. The gospel is spreading rapidly. Little churches are popping up in towns all over the world. We read about it in Acts. We read about it in, in the letters to the churches. You don't have to get very far. You get the 1 Corinthians or Galatians. The, the writer of those books is already mad at the church for getting sleepy. So they get sleepy in the first 200 years. So certainly there were these pockets of sleep, but there were these other pockets of revival. So it just keeps spreading and spreading and spreading. The church dedicated itself, Acts 2.42, to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking the bread, and prayer. Just the ordinary operations of the Holy Spirit. And, and the gospel spread across our planet and little churches popped up, and they had this intensification of what the Spirit wanted to do. If you know American history, we've had multiple awakenings. Most historians would name two. Some would name three or four. The first awakening happened before we were ever a nation. second awakening happened around the year 1800. Those of you guys that are historians in the room, you know who the president was at that time. It was Thomas Jefferson. He got elected in 1800, and the church freaked out. I don't know any church like that. Freaked out because Thomas Jefferson got elected president, president, and he was a deist. He didn't believe in Jesus. He believed in God, but he didn't believe in Jesus. And he was arguing directly with the church. There's these ongoing arguments with him and, and people of the clergy. And so the church was... All up in the uproar. What are we going to do? We're losing our nation. The nation's going to hell in a handbasket, right? Y'all ain't, ain't heard any of that, have you? Like, like, they're freaking out. Sure enough, even before Thomas Jefferson was elected, there's this little frontier revival going on in western Kentucky, which would have been the furthest west part of the United States at that point. They're cutting ground, rough people trying to make it, and some preachers came in, and people started getting saved in western Kentucky. Interesting. It pops up in the big city of 1,200 people of Lexington, Kentucky. It moves east a little bit, and, and I can't remember the number, Ten or 20,000 people converge on Lexington, Kentucky, and folks start getting saved. Next thing you know, it's bounced to Yale. I don't know, you know where Yale is? Yale's in New England. A lot of smart people at Yale. Yale had already started to slide left, not, not politically, theologically, um, and they were sliding left, and all of a sudden this president was added to their, he became the president of Yale, he knew Jesus, he began to pray, students began to pray, and they say that a third of the college flipped in that season, it changed everything. As some of the writers write, it changed like the attitude of the whole college, and that thing spread across the Northeast, and we call it the Second Great Awakening. 
reminds me a lot of today when I read this story. Now, here's the facts about an awakening. It's always, always messy. It's messy. A lot of us like stuff in canned form because we don't want any mess. We don't want to be around messy people. We don't want anybody to know that we're messy. But revival's always messy. In Kentucky, man, some of the stories you read, like, like, they're just crazy. It's messy. There's always revival seekers. There's always people that want to come see it. They don't really want to be it. They just want to see it. They just want to taste it. They just want to feel the emotion of it because they hadn't felt anything in a long time. It doesn't seem to be as much about God as it is about them. And here's what's always true. Church people are most often the most critical and most cynical. I would argue because we're sleepy. And when I'm sleepy, I don't like being shaken. Matter of fact, if you shake me while I'm sleepy, I get really grumpy. So I want to go back to sleep. So let me just go through some traits of a revival. What I think is really interesting about the Second Awakening, the church is furious at Thomas Jefferson, and they're also furious at the revivalists, right? Like they're mad about the government, and they're mad at God and some of the jacked up stuff. Traits of the revival. I got this from Tim Keller. I'm just going to go through five traits of, of, of a revival as we titled this message. We kind of changed this this week because of what's going on in the nation. We, we titled it Real Revival. The Red Letter Podcast, Real Revival, because we thought it would be really good for us to talk about it. Those of us that know Jesus ought to look hard at this and know what we think about it. If you've not met Jesus, hopefully even some of this history the Holy Spirit will use in your heart. First, first characteristic or trait of a revival, there's always a recovery of the gospel. If you want to read it in the Bible, go to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah rebuilds a wall. A lot of y'all know that if, you're church, if you've been in church a long time, but do you remember the part where they open up the word and Ezra opens up the Bible and he reads it and the people come unglued? Some because it moved them to repentance and some because they're overwhelmed by the beauty and the power of God's word. In our nation's history, in the first great awakening, there was a guy named Jonathan Edwards. Very smart, theological guy, not super entertaining communicator. And so he would write out his sermons and he would just read them. But the Holy Spirit was working on that. Here's the thing, you don't need some great charismatic preacher. You simply need God's word and the spirit working. And so Jonathan Edwards wrote some amazing sermons. If you want to go read them, they're, they're still, they'll still rock you. But they would, they, he would print them, and then they'd pass them out, and other pastors would just read his sermons. There's, there's one story told of his sermon being read in a church in one of the cities and the building shaking. You're like, man, I don't know, man, I don't know. But I, I, I believe it. Because the gospel in its full force, and when the Holy Spirit is landing it, it moves, it shakes me. <clears throat> I imagine it could shake some stone. What happens when we recover the gospel is that the legalist, I'll use my right hand for the legalist, right? The, the legalist kind of lose the mic. And the liberal, I'll use my left hand for that, that makes sense, doesn't it? Like, they lose the mic. The legalist 
always talking about sin, and they kind of beat you down with it in a way that doesn't move you to repentance. It just makes you sad, sometimes even mad. And They sure enough feel, seem mad. And the liberal, it seems to excuse all sin and, and make sin kind of trivial. And it, it's, it's almost as if, it's if they have to to justify the way they want to live. The legalist seems miserable, and so does the liberal. So an awakening when, when the gospel takes center stage again, got to deal with it. Here we've been preaching, trying to get to both the left and the right. We just went through Galatians because in our culture, South Carolina, if you've been in church, we know this over here where you've been beaten down. And Galatians is this message of grace, and it holds the gospel high. We did a little topical series on sexuality a while back. We called it He, She, His. And the, the left, like they just want to condone anything and everything so that everybody's good. And, and that feels miserable as well. It seems to be no hope if everybody's good. And so there's this tension in the room. So as the true gospel, the gospel of grace comes to the front, remember we talked about last week, it seems like the church begins to stop worrying about all this and, and our hands start to come up and it starts to be centered around God instead of how I want to live or how I want to tell other people to live. It becomes about God, it becomes about the truth about him and the fact that he gave us the gospel and our hands, they go high. We break out of our slumber, we're shaken during a revival, and we remember how to worship. For some of us, you remember that day when you had freedom to worship. It's been a long time. There's recovery of the gospel. There's always church growth during a revival. And I mean like numbers of people. Now, you can have church growth without revival, right? You don't need to have revival to have church growth. People will come to it, but you do things right. People will show up at a place, but you can't have revival without church growth. Anytime you read about revival throughout history, there's always this explosion of the gospel in society. Tozer says this, which I thought was pretty interesting. A gathering is not big because of a lot of people are present. It is because a big God is present. I went to uh, see Jesus Revolution last night. I think it's only in the movies theater for like three days. It's probably still there. If you want to go, go. I cried a lot. I was glad the lights were off. It's about uh, the 1970s. This, uh, during the hippie movement, coming out of the 60s, um, this guy named Chuck Smith in California, arguably our last revival in the United States. Of massive scale. Chuck Smith's leading this little church, this little sleepy church. It reminded me a lot of our uh, Radius White and Old building. They're sitting in there and there's 20, 30 people in there. He's preaching and he's frustrated because there's no movement. Everybody seems to be sleepy and he meets this hippie. It is, uh, it is hilarious to, to watch the whole thing go down. And as this hippie comes in and 
Holy Spirit has grabbed this guy. It re-energizes. It knocks Chuck Smith out of his frustration and out of his sleep. And as the hippies start coming to the church, some of y'all that are my age, like, like I barely can remember the hippies. Most of y'all just read about the hippies. Some of y'all are hippies. Like, like we got a little bit of all that. Like, like, so, like, all, all that's going on. So you can, you can just imagine it. And in the movie, they'll have, like, kind of the, quote, clean folks on this side and all the hippies on this side. But the hippies are, like, overflowing their side of church. And they, they're holding up their Bibles, and they're doing all this crazy stuff. It, 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 was, it was crazy to watch. I'm just weep, reminding myself that God saves folks. Man, there's a dude, there's a drug addict in that. I'm sure we have a couple here. And uh, perhaps yours is hidden. Because these days, we've learned how to do that in the bathroom when nobody can see, over and over and over and over. And honestly, when I saw the show, this guy comes in, believes for the first time, and I thought, man, I just wouldn't believe that he could be changed. Convicted my soul. I know, like on paper, the Holy Spirit changes who he wants to. So in the 70s, the Jesus Revolution, one, one guy wrote, as I read about it, that it makes Woods, Woodstock seem trivial. He said Woodstock is so overrated because the Jesus Revolution, the Jesus People Revolution that happened in the 70s transformed the nation. It went from place to place to place. This is a story told about Calvary Chapel. We actually have a Calvary Chapel here in Lexington birthed out of that movement by Chuck Smith. His little church, little church of 20 called Calvary Chapel where lost people started getting saved by the hundreds and by the thousands. If you get to go see the movie, like, they're just, they're down in the ocean. They're just baptizing one kid after another kid after another kid after another kid. I want to see that. And it began to wake the church up out of her slumber in the 70s. Tim Keller, my favorite, was at Bucknell. He was a student. He said there was five people in the student group, and he came to Christ, so he was number six. He said, next thing you know, we had 100, 100 people. It's like it just happened in the 70s, early 70s. And then they brought together the schools of Pennsylvania. All the colleges of Pennsylvania got together for a worship service, and he goes, there was hundreds and hundreds of people, and they all had the same story. For y'all young people, they didn't have the Internet. They didn't have texting. Like They, they might have had like an answering machine or something. I'm not sure, but like, like, that was it. Like That's the only way the word could spread. It wasn't spreading rapidly over the Internet. It was the Holy Spirit was doing it in Pennsylvania, and all these schools got together, and they all gone from five or ten kids to 100. Like, what is going on? It's a lot like what's happening right now in our country. The question is, will we allow the Holy Spirit to make our hands move high? Because as the church worships and she recovers the true gospel, it makes you worship and folks are attracted and eventually folks will believe. And I'm sure there's folks in this room this morning that need to believe in Jesus for the first time. We've been praying for you all week. There's always anointed corporate worship when uh, revival breaks out. Man, if you uh, saw just a brief clip from Asbury, that's happening all over the country. And it's not just tens of colleges now, it's getting into the hundreds. All different 
Some of them are going 24-7. Some of them are meeting every night. One of my sons at his college, they were praying every night, just a group of a few guys. He texted us the other night, Mom, he's like, there's hundreds, there's a, there's a hundred people here to pray tonight. They've just been praying in their dorm room, and then they had to move to a little bigger space. And last night, he, he sent a, a video of them in the uh, campus, whatever the campus gathering room is, where they got food and they sell stuff, and it's full of students. And their hands, they're held high, and they're worshiping. You can feel it through the video, what's going on there. But when we say anointed cor- corporate worship, we don't mean that we have a great band and everybody sings on key. We mean that it's clear that the presence of God is there. So you and I'll have a decision in just a few minutes. We're going to sing a little bit more. Will you invite the presence of God in our room together, this together moment? Many of us would be surprised to meet God when we come to church. We meet people. We see people we love and like, and we're even interested in their lives, honestly. We'll be surprised because we become sleepy. Number four, there's always extraordinary prayer. If I've tasted anything that looks like revival personally, it's been connected to prayer. In 1997, I think it was, I got this book called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. I've told you about it before. It's by Jim Cimbala from Brooklyn Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York. And so I was at Clemson leading a little church plant. And I jumped in the car and took two students. We got in the car and we drove to Brooklyn, which is not the smartest thing to do if you're from South Carolina and you drive a, I think I drove a Volkswagen Jetta or something at that point. I'm not sure what I drove, but I drove it all the way and we parked it downtown and uh, went to this thing, and they were there to pray at 5.30. Prayer, prayer meeting started at 7. I'm like, what's out? What are they doing here? Walked in the door. There's like 500 people in there praying. It's stunk. There's so many people all gathered up. They're all praying out. Some of y'all charismatic folks, you know what they're doing. They're all praying at the same time. I'm like, this is against the rules. You can't all be praying at the same time. They're all praying out loud. So I walk up in there. I'm trying to get my head straight, and there's this lady behind me praying pretty loud. It's really hard for me to concentrate on what I'm trying to pray, coming from my little conservative place in the world. And it was, it was powerful. You could, you could cut, <laughs> like you could, if you could cut the Holy Spirit's presence in a room, you, you could have that day. I came back troubled by it, working through it. I got invited to this campus group at the University of Georgia. I thought it was a Bible study. I'm comfortable with Bible studies. They seem controlled. I come in the door, they're praying, everybody's heads down. When I got there, and they kept praying the whole time. I'm like, is anybody going like, to do some announcements or something? Like, what, what is this thing? What are we even at? It's in this house, and all these students, they're just praying. It was, uh, again, deeply moving. Our little church was growing. We called it DCF. We we're going to do a series on Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, college students will come from, from miles for Song of Solomon because it's about sex and marriage, right? Like, and they're interested. So, like, I came back. I go, we're canceling the Song of Solomon series, and, People are like, you can't cancel that. I'm like, darn straight, we, we gotta, we've got to pray. We've got to pray. We'll figure out the sex and marriage right, later, right? Like, let's, let's, let's pray for a little bit. And, and there's a couple guys in this room that were there. Twelve guys and I got together and we prayed. If I've touched anything outside of my own soul that has felt like revival, that one week of prayer was 
deep and wonderful. It started with 12, and we, we tried to multiply it every time. So to have 24 the next time, 48. So invite somebody. Simply invite somebody. By the end of the week, we met in this little gym. I still remember it. It was just weird. It was surreal. It's hard to even articulate what happened. And then at the very end, we had to go to amphitheater to rally people. There's a lady on our staff named Andrea Crick out at Radius Centerville this morning. She was there, and she points back to that week as pivotal, as life-changing for her personally. For me, as a little bit older guy, I was in my late 20s, I just didn't know what to do with it. It was beyond me. I was call. I couldn't text. I was calling my, I'm doing this, I'm calling my friends, asking, I, like, I might need you to come. I might need you to come. People that knew the Lord, I might need you to help, come help me with this. And then it was over. Which is how I think revivals often work. And then we go back to the grind. And we make disciples, plant churches, and live generously. But the Lord wants to pour himself out. We sure as heck don't want to miss it and be asleep. And be so frustrated that he's shaking us that we will not respond. We're doing a couple of real simple things here at Radius. There's a QR code they'll flash up. They'll flash it up later in this. It's, a, it's a, just a prayer. A prayer thing. <laughs> really, we're just asking you to take a half hour during this week. There's, there's 400 partners here at Radius. We can go all week with one, everybody taking one half hour. Be straight with you. If we can't do that, ain't no revival. here. Because we're not. Like, we just got too much going on to pray. It also means some of y'all got to pray at night. I prayed last week at 2.30 a.m., and it took me 15 minutes to get warmed up. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, right? Like, uh, you got to make sure you keep moving. But it was good. I don't know. When I went back to bed, it was just good. I'm like, there's something about that that was right. I mean, this isn't like the, the way you have to do it. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, dude, how sleepy are we? I've heard stories of groups praying half the time this week. I've heard a variety. One of them say it was one of the best groups they've had all time. I heard another group saying how awkward it was, and then they actually innovated and began to figure out how to learn to pray. It wasn't all spoken out loud. Some of it was private, and then they would summarize it in a sentence. It's beautiful. It's what's supposed to happen when you want to do something, and it's hard or awkward, like it, you work through it, and, and eventually what's happened is your hands have been high, right? Like when you worship, your hands are high. When folks are getting saved, we're celebrating like mad, right? When we, uh, uh, the anointed corporate worship, I'm not great at getting my hands up. I can get, kind of get one hand up. Cheryl goes two-fisted. Like she can go straight like, oh, y'all, we're all different. And maybe today when we sing in a minute, you'll get your hands up, and when you start to pray, your hands start coming down. I was talking to my youngest at his college, and I said, look, if people start repenting of their sins, then it's on. Then it's on. I get it. The most dramatic part of, though some people think the bizarre is, I think the most dramatic part of revival number five is repentance. People come to the end of themselves because they've been interacting with the living God. And so they come to the end of themselves and they hold out their hands and say, God, look at me. This is who I am. I'm sorry. And they'll actually say it out loud at times. Which brings us to this passage that we've been reading for three or four weeks now. We call it the Red Letter Podcast. Everybody else calls it the Sermon on the Mount. When you read chapter 5, you cannot get away from the idea of real revival. 
chapter 5, verse 4. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. They don't condone on the left, and they don't condemn on the right. They mourn. They lay down their arrogance about their theology. They lay down their arrogance about political views. And they mourn the brokenness of the community around them, and often the mourning goes so deep, you can hear a room moan because they're looking at their own sin as opposed to everybody else's. 11 and 12, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad. For the great reward will wait you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Oftentimes, we're not happy enough, and we're not sad enough here because we're sleepy. So nobody's scared of us. Nobody's talking bad about us. Who's scared of somebody who's asleep? Verse 20, but I warn, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Perhaps we're so cynical during moments like this because we're self-righteous. We need to defend our position. Some of y'all probably criticizing me right now for one thing or another. I haven't read enough Bible today. I'm talking too long. Why is he talking about revival? You got all of this stuff instead of just saying, God, deal with me. think we really like to say we have it all figured out. Verse 22, 23. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there on the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. That is revival. When you can't worship because you're bitter towards somebody else, you know that it doesn't make sense to sing about God and be bitter about somebody else in the room. It doesn't make sense. You have to go deal with it. We have to put our grudges aside. We have to go see it. I don't know about you, but at times when I'm right with God, I cannot let one of those go. I have to get in the car and go see somebody. There's so much peace when I do. It's so right when I go get it right. Man, if you need to go now, go. Get up and go. Or when we sing. Verse 29, so if your eye, even your good eye, I love that, and it'll tell your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. What? It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. He's talking about lust here. Tim Keller says, maybe the reason why America can't have revival anymore is because everybody's sleeping with a girlfriend. How do you worship when you sleep with your girlfriend? <laughs> Apply that to virtual sex and all forms of sexual perversion. He's, he's just asking this really interesting question of, like, you can't afford to hold God high in his way high if you want what you want. So... In revival, what's beautiful at the college campuses, it happened in this room last night. We had college girls in this room last night worshiping and dealing with their stuff. I rolled up because I pray in here at night. I like to pray for y'all. They're still here, still singing. So I sat out in the lobby and waited. Happy to. Verse 37. 
just say a simple yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. Some of our identities are completely built on some false narrative that we've placed in our minds. Our nation now is actually tying that to sexuality, trying to get us to be consumed with some other form of identity than Christ. Any other identity will put together any kind of lie. You can point the finger at them or them, but the question is really like, what identity have I built in my own mind that makes me self-righteous? Say, hey, just deal in the truth. Verses go on. I don't have time out of time. The last verses, which we really would have dealt with today, basically say every great believer gives up his or her rights for a better kingdom. You lay down your rights for a better kingdom. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, you have to be shaken to give up your rights. When my rights are offended, I don't know, I am so ready to just go. That unless I'm deep in worship or deeply moved by God, it's hard to be shaken like that. The very last verse, I'll just read it. But you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, there it is. Feel like a failure now? Good. All of us do. We're talking about perfection. And he's calling us out to repentance so that he can take his righteousness and give it to us. So that you come take bread and juice in a a minute because you're made righteous in Jesus Christ. After that list that I just read that convicts everybody in the room, if you feel bad because of one of the lines I read in there, I mean, everybody feels bad. Listen to that. But you are to be perfect even as the Father in heaven is perfect. So we repent. The the Koreans had this massive revival. And the shop owners in Korea were overwhelmed with returned goods. You know why? Because people were getting saved and they felt guilty about stuff they had stolen from the stores. So they're bringing back all the stuff. The shop owners like confused. There were even things that where they lied in a negotiation coming back to try to make it right. You need to do that today. You talk about freedom. You go back and make something right. Well, you did wrong. That's repentance. So perhaps if the Lord is stirring in our nation and there is a revival and we get to call it the third or fifth or eighth awakening, I would assume that those uh, of us in the room that are sleepy are going to wake up. It'll probably be your choice, right? It probably won't be by force. Romans says that the spirit bears witness with your spirit. I have prayed that he would do that this morning. That spirit that bears witness with our spirit assures us of our salvation. We stop doubting our salvation because sometimes you're so sleepy you start doubting whether I could really be saved. It leads us to do things that are unexpected. It makes us more about his glory than our own. The other really interesting thing that happens in a revival is that the nominal Christians, you know what the definition of nominal is? Nominal, existing in name only. The nominal Christians get saved. Hey, when Radius was 100 people, we kind of knew everybody. Wasn't a whole lot of nominal folks here. 
2,500, there's a lot of nominal folks here. You might be one of them. Like you're a Christian in name only. The cool thing about revival as folks interact with God and see others interact with God, they begin to realize they're missing something. I had a basketball player that played for me. He was my best player. He went home, uh, it was either Christmas break or summer break, and he came back. He was different. He was like the nicest kid on my team. He was a great player, so I loved him. He came back, and he said, I got saved while I was home. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, man, I just kind of downloaded what my parents taught me. I've been in church my whole life. I just kind of did that thing. He knew the Bible inside and out, but he hadn't met Jesus. The Holy Spirit hadn't transformed him. You talk about a different a different way of living he had at that time. It was beautiful, and perhaps that's you. Hey, ain't no shame in that here. When revival breaks out, even if we're not in a revival, the Holy Spirit wants you. He wants to break you out of just existing in name only. Perhaps we'll get to see the third type of wake up. Also, some of the far off come to Christ dramatically. That person who OD'd again, that person that had another affair, a person that you wouldn't trust with anything, man, the Holy Spirit ain't scared of that. I, I can look around the room. I know a couple of you. Holy Spirit ain't care, scared of where you come from. He could change you dramatically. Martin Lloyd-Jones Famous theologian, been dead for about 40 years, super smart, so all the smart guys quote him. I'll quote him as an exception today. <laughs> I don't understand Christian people who are not thrilled by the whole idea of revival. Who wouldn't want that? Jesus. You know we do this every Sunday, most of us. Meet us just in these few moments as we sing. Stir inside of us, Lord. We don't want anything that's not you. We don't want to make something happen, Lord. We either want you to move or not. We trust you with that. Many of us in this room, probably all of us, have to admit some, some level of sleepiness. Awaken us, Holy Spirit. Awaken us. Even as we take bread and juice and sing these songs, awaken us. I got friends in this room that are nominal. They just kind of punch this box on occasion. The only Christian in name, only Holy Spirit, awaken them to that fact in their heart and bring them to saving knowledge that you offer. Move powerfully in our room, Lord, as we Try to hold our hands high or hold our hands out. We want to sing about your greatness, but we also want to examine ourselves in these few minutes together. Be here, Lord, in Jesus' name.